and Chien Andalou, the surrealist masterpiece directed by Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali, runs for barely 17 minutes. Yet its vision is so astonishing and its impact so far-reaching, frame for frame, and there are about 23,600 of them, it is unquestionably one of the most influential films ever made. In a moment, I will discuss the legion of films that have spawned in its moonlight, but for now, let us examine its origins. What led Bunuel and Dali to create it? I ask that because for all its shocking imagery, startling violence and breathtaking juxtapositions, if you were at the film's premiere in 1929, it is very likely that you had read in detail the Surrealist Manifesto, as well as the writings of Sigmund Freud, say the interpretation of dreams, jokes and their relation to the unconscious, or better still, beyond the pleasure principle. Which means that you would have been familiar with the subject and its imagery. The Surrealist Manifesto, proclaimed on October the 15th, 1924, by poet, author and literary critic André Breton, was a rallying cry for free expression, the release of the subconscious mind and the rejection of social and moral conventions. He called it automatism, acts of spontaneous creation. Breton and his coterie of radical intellectuals were fascinated by the fine line between reason and irrationality, especially dreams and erotica. Which is why Unchien Andalou abounds with Freudian imagery, sexual imagery, dream logic, allusions to castration, non sequiturs, visual puns, and above all, a resolute determination to deliver an irrational experience typical of the Surrealist movement. Typical because by the time Bunuel and Dali came to premiere their film, several Surrealist filmmakers had already applied the manifesto to cinema. Cinema was a logical place for Surrealists to go. To the Surrealists, cinema was a waking dream. A darkened room where pictures were projected onto a screen that juxtaposed images with one another in a way that painting never could. Barely seven weeks after Breton published his manifesto, René Clair unveiled Entracte, a 22-minute collage dominated by sequences of people running in slow motion, intercut with ballet dancers viewed from various angles. Four years later, Germain Dulac directed The Seashell and the Clergyman, which detailed in 28 minutes the lustful ventures of a cleric obsessed with the wife of a military officer. And then in 1928, Man Ray delivered The Sea Star, which showcased in 17 minutes a variety of distorted images depicting a man and a woman walking through a city and then intercutting them with a starfish being examined in a jar. best, these three films mocked revered institutions such as religion, the law and the civil bourgeoisie. But however witty their juxtapositions were, history has now redefined the trio as being little more than discreet amusements, unwitting overtures to the inflammatory, debauched and riotous Unchien Andalou. Upon seeing the film, author Henry Miller described it as a gob of spit in the face of art. And yet, for all its fevered intention to tear down tradition and institutions, it is somewhat ironic that Unchien Andalou's first screening came in the very city that saw the birth of cinema. 
Cinema as we know it came into being in Paris on December the 28th, 1895, when the Lumiere brothers hired out the basement of the Salon Indiendecon Café on the Boulevard du Capucine to screen their collection of 10 short films before a fee-paying audience. From there, and tentatively over the next three decades, this new medium cultivated its own unique language. Its vocabulary and grammar united to either make stories of the real world, by which I mean fiction film, or take stories from the real world, by which I mean documentaries. But because filmmakers were so intent on stories, motivated by the cause and effect relationship between events, the stories were told through editing. And in a surrealist sense, editing is juxtaposition. Juxtapositions swarm through Unchien Andalou. It begins like a bedtime story. Once upon a time is how the opening caption reads. But within seconds, a woman's eyeball is sliced open by a razor blade. From there, with audiences struggling to recover, or to reopen their eyes and keep looking in horror, Bunuel and Dali blaze their way through short sequences that depict, amongst other things, the palm of a man's hand being overrun with a colony of ants, the same man's mouth covered in a woman's pubic hair, the same man again dragging a grand piano laden down with rotting corpses of two donkeys and two very bewildered priests. This was followed by an androgynous figure poking at a severed hand in a busy street, before finishing up with an image of a man and a woman buried on a beach up to their necks in sand. No one had names, no one had motivations, there was no story. So how did it all work? Because, time and again, Bunuel and Dali discarded the causal links between the sequences and randomly cut to images where the juxtaposition was designed to defy, rather than develop, any story. More than defy, they were designed to shock, appall and nauseate. Or, to quote Bunuel himself, the film was nothing other than a desperate, impassioned call for murder. Obviously, Bunuel did not make the film as an incitement to homicide. Instead, Bunuel was attacking cinema itself. Consider the film's most notorious image. What is really happening there? The eye, the very organ which is needed to experience a film, is mutilated. And with what? A razor blade, the instrument needed to edit a film. In other words, like all surrealists, Bunuel was suggesting to the audience that they not trust their eyes. What followed would be an assault designed to make no sense. However, Bunuel and Dali did have a very clear design. They made the film in order to announce themselves to the surrealist group. Before that, the duo were struggling to make ends meet, let alone make a name for themselves as Spanish artists in Paris. They had known each other since their student days in Madrid, and meeting again in France, they conjured up scenarios taken from some of their most vivid dreams. One of Bunuel's involved the moon being sliced apart by a sliver of cloud, while Dali's many phantasms included the ants in the hand. With funding coming from Bunuel's mother, they made the film in 15 days, with Bunuel himself doing all the editing. But here is something curious. It was not up to Bunuel or Dali to define themselves, or their film, as surrealist. Yes, for all their radical aims, the Surrealist group were a highly bureaucratic and extremely exclusive bunch who would meet to discuss, amongst other things, 
the eligibility of applicants to decide whether they were authentic surrealists or charlatans intent on setting up their own rival faction. All of which reminds me of a Monty Python sketch. Are you the Judean People's Front? Fuck off! What? Judean People's Front. Well, the People's Front of Judea. Judean People's Front. Come, <laughs> wankers. Can I join your group? Now, nah, piss off. But enough about the origins of Enchant on the Lou. How about its influence? Well, the most obvious would be Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound in which Gregory Peck played John Ballantyne, a traumatised man trying to regain his memory. Made in 1945, Hitchcock engaged Dali to design the dream sequence that enigmatically lays out the clues that would help solve the mystery. It seemed to be a gambling house. But there weren't any walls, just a lot of curtains with eyes painted on them. A man was walking around with a large pair of scissors cutting all the drapes in half. From there, we can begin to list all the films that have relied on dreams, contained mysterious dreams, or operate through dream logic. Which means anything and everything from Hitchcock's Vertigo, Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, Lindsay Anderson's If, Jaromil Yerich's Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street series, Jean-Pierre Jeunet and Marc Caro's Delicatessen, Danny Boyle's Trainspotting, Christopher Nolan's Inception, and Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, to almost any film directed by David Lynch. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. Hitchcock revived the surreal juxtaposition, if only for a brief moment, in Psycho, where he dissolves from the water spinning down the shower drain in the Bates Motel to Marion Crane's eye as she lies dead on the bathroom floor. But the thing to focus on here is not necessarily the juxtaposition, but rather the eye. In the same year as Psycho, Michael Powell released his highly controversial and sadly career-debilitating masterpiece Peeping Tom, in which the eyes of the audience are placed in the eyes of a murderous filmmaker. Which revives Bunuel's suggestion that the eyes are not to be trusted. That the act of looking in film is a dangerous thing, both for the person looking and the person they are looking at. Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which details the mental breakdown of a young beautician played by Catherine Deneuve, opens with a credit sequence which shows, in very tight close-up, Deneuve's eye. Significantly, Polanski's directorial credit drifts across her pupil in the same way as Bunuel's razor blade. Then Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange continued the tradition of assaulting the audience's eyes during the sequence depicting the Ludovico technique. In Blade Runner and its sequel, things are slightly different, because it is the eye that is examined to identify humans from replicants. While in Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, Tom Cruise's character John Anderton disguises his identity by undergoing an eye transplant. Don't scratch. Never scratch! 
Seeing as we've been old pals and all, I'm gonna give you a bonus. It might come in handy. This is a temporary pilot again, son. You're gonna shoot this baby up there right on no, your chin. What is this? Oh, it's gonna turn your purity phase into mush. People won't even recognize you, okay? In 30 minutes, it'll tighten up again, but it's gonna hurt like nothing you ever felt before. Gonna put this in your goodie bag together with your leftovers. But they are either individual films or films by very individual filmmakers. Let's look at genre. Surrealism has lent itself most explicitly to two, science fiction and horror, and most effectively to films that splice the two. And perhaps because they always remind me of the ants in the hand from Unchien on the Lou, the most effective examples of the horror sci-fi hybrid involve insects. Take Gordon Douglas's Them from 1954, in which a radiation leak causes an ant colony to infest the sewer system in Los Angeles. Guillermo del Toro's Mimic from 1997, which, although set in Manhattan, also slips into the underground for its climax. While in that same year, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers went to war with bugs in a galaxy far, far away. Ten years later, the citizens of Bridgeton, Maine, found themselves trapped by insects inside a supermarket for almost all of Frank Darabont's The Mist. That film contains the bleakest ending of all films within the subgenre. But for me, the most disturbing example would certainly be David Cronenberg's The Fly. What am I working on? Uh, I'm working on something that'll change the world and human life as we know it. Change it a lot or just a bit? You'll have to be more specific. What do you want me to be specific here in this room with uh, half the scientific community of North America eavesdropping? Is there another way? Uh, you could come back to my lab. Its origins can be traced to June 1957, when Playboy magazine published George Langelan's short story about an inventor whose body merges with that of a fly due to a mishap in his teletransportation machine. The next year, Kurt Newman's film adaptation spawned two sequels. But the budgets for the trilogy were low, and the available technology was unable to fully exploit Langeland's superb premise. So it wasn't until 1986, with enormous advances in makeup and special effects, that Cronenberg was able to deepen Langeland's material. In Newman's version, it is only the heads that are swapped. But in Cronenberg's film, screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue Imagine the fusion of man and insect as gradual, like a disease imperceptibly draining the humanity out of its host and replacing it with its own DNA. But what really seals the fly's surrealist credentials is the way Pogue's script explored the sexual complications. I want you to go through. I'm going to teleport you as soon as possible, right now. You feel incredible, Ronnie. I don't need to sleep anymore and I feel wonderful. It's like a drug, but a perfectly pure and benign drug. The power I feel surging inside me. And I want to be able to wear you out. We'll be the perfect couple, the dynamic duo. Come on, right now. Unaware he is turning into an insect, Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, impregnates his girlfriend, Ronnie, played by Gina Davis. Sex, horror, and insects. It sounds like a tasty meal. I'll get a bottle of Chianti. <laughs> 